If you would turn to Matthew the 6th chapter, Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin there in just a moment. Spend a brief amount of time to start our lesson. It is such an encouraging thing to be with you here this morning, and I've been certainly edified by the worship thus far. appreciate Buddy's leading of those songs and for Doug's prayer, focusing our minds on the things of a spiritual nature this morning. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, in His Sermon on the Mount, gives an example of a prayer that would be proper for His disciples to pray. It was certainly a model prayer. It is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Probably what would be more accurate is John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer, or when Jesus is in the garden, that's the Lord's Prayer. Anytime the Lord prayed and it is recorded for us, that's the Lord's Prayer. This is... Jesus teaching us how to pray. And we know it pretty well. In verse 9 it begins, Jesus says, In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want us to especially notice in verse 10 what Jesus says in this model prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'd suggest to you that that particular part of the prayer was appropriate to the time that Jesus spoke it in Matthew the 6th chapter. But not for us today. And we'll discuss why in a moment. But we still hear it all the time. And it's a common misunderstanding among those who are religious. They pray that the kingdom would come, which implies it has not yet arrived. That was the truth in Matthew 6. It was the truth until what we'll see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But the fact of the fulfillment remaining as a future time in Matthew chapter 6 made it appropriate to pray. But I would suggest to you that the kingdom has come, and it is. And so it would not be appropriate for us to pray, your kingdom come. We would pray that your kingdom would continue, that your kingdom would thrive, that your kingdom would grow, but not that it would come. It's already here. And so the fulfillment of such requests and prayer during Jesus' day have come, and it is very important that they were fulfilled. But many in the religious world today pray that prayer, and many in the religious world would assert that the kingdom has not yet come. Let me suggest to you that to deny that the kingdom has come and yet is still future is to refuse the truth of God. The Bible makes very clear and certain that the kingdom has indeed come, past tense, that it is indeed present and that there are people in it today. And to deny that the kingdom has come is to face many consequences. We'll consider a few at the end of the lesson, Lord willing. But probably one of the most familiar false teachings that we are faced with in the world today that teaches the kingdom has not yet come is premillennialism. The idea of pre, before, and millennial, a thousand, and the discussion of the thousand-year reign of Christ that we read of in Revelation that is a, a figurative consideration that these things are, are signified as Revelation begins. And we're not going to get into detail about that. That's a lot of what we'll encounter in the world today. 
people that believe the kingdom has not yet come, that it is still in the future, and that when Christ comes again, He will set up a kingdom that is on earth where He will reign on a literal physical throne for a thousand years. And then there will be the final judgment, and then we will go to heaven or we will go to hell. That's just not true. One of the reasons it's such a fundamental false teaching is because of the fundamental truth of the New Testament that the kingdom has indeed come. Another false idea is that some distinguish between the kingdom and the church. And this is what those who believe in premillennialism would assert to us, that the kingdom has not come, that the church is here, and that the kingdom and the church are separated. They are distinct entities. But notice in Matthew 16 and verse 18, when Peter made the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, I say to you that you are Peter in Matthew 16, 18, and on this rock I will build my church. And then he goes on in verse 19 to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. These two things are not a, a change in the discussion, but they are married together. They are inseparable. The kingdom and the church are the same institution described in two different ways. You could describe me as a man. You could describe me as a husband. You could describe me as a father or a friend, a preacher, whatever you, you could, could see in my life that fits me as a person. You could describe me as that, but I'm still the same person. And so the kingdom looks to the government. The kingdom looks to the fact that there's a king, that it's a monarchy, and that Jesus is on the throne. And the church speaks of the people. They are the called out of the world into the kingdom. And so it's discussing the same thing. And one of the reasons that's important to note, as the Bible is very clear that the kingdom and the church are one and the same, is that when we can see when the kingdom came and the fact that the kingdom is, we see where the church came into existence and therefore which church Jesus actually built. Any church that was established after what we see the kingdom being established is not indeed the church of God. And so these are fundamental truths that the Bible is very clear about that the world has rejected. We need to be equipped to answer the world and their false teaching. And so let's consider the appropriateness of the prayer, thy kingdom come in Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 10 very briefly. Thy kingdom come speaks of future tense and it was that case back before the New Testament uh, events of Jesus's life even began. For example, in Daniel, the second chapter, we see the kingdom in its prophesied sense as there were people looking forward to the kingdom coming. In Daniel chapter 2, we remember very well that Daniel is one of the wise men in Babylon And he is an individual who is a Jew, who has faith in the God, who has all knowledge and wisdom. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And none of the wise men or soothsayers in the kingdom of Babylon could tell him his dream, much less interpret his dream. And Daniel and his friends are sought to be destroyed and killed like all the other wise men who failed. And Daniel says, just a minute, let us go and appeal to the mercies of our God and we'll be able to tell you your dream and its interpretation. That's exactly what we see in Daniel, the second chapter. And there are various points in this particular passage which give us an understanding of what to look to to see the fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom. Notice first in Daniel 2 and in verse 28. 
He tells the king that there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. That's an important phrase that we'll see as we progress throughout this lesson. His dream had to do with things that would come in the dispensation described as the latter days. And so he tells him the dream in verse 31, beginning, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while the stone was cut out without hands and struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was step one. He couldn't have known that except by divine revelation. None of the other people had heard what the king's dream was for a reason because he didn't want a phony interpretation. But Daniel supplied the very dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, which confirmed he was a man of God, but he wanted the interpretation, so Daniel gave it, about things that would occur in the latter days. Notice in verse 36, beginning. Daniel says, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and made you ruler over them all. I want to pause there. He says, you're a king that God has given a world empire to. And then he says, you are this head of gold. And so the head of gold represents a kingdom that is a world empire. And then he continues, and he says in verse 39, after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another and a third kingdom of bronze, which shall be uh, shall rule over all the earth, and a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, a kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. And so I want us to understand He's progressing from Babylon, a world empire, to a kingdom after it that is also a world empire, to a third and a fourth kingdom that are also world empires. And then we get down to verse 44. And he says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. And so you have a world empire that is succeeded by another and another and another. And in the days of these kings, the image representing all of them, world empires, in the days of the last kingdom, then God would set up His kingdom that would destroy them all, and it would never be destroyed. With those facts, we look at history, beginning with the kingdom of Babylon, and we can see that the head being Babylon, as Daniel mentioned, is followed by the chest and arms of silver, that is Medo-Persia, and then the belly and thighs of bronze, which is the Greece empire, and then the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, which is the empire of Rome. 
Now, there's more details we could look into this, but this suffices for our question, when was the kingdom established? It was established during the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was that fourth world empire wherein God would establish His kingdom and destroy all world empires for time and forevermore. We progress to Isaiah chapter 2 to consider another prophecy of this messianic kingdom that is to come in the words of prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 2, we notice some similarities beginning in verse 2. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. He told Nebuchadnezzar that God made known to you some things that would come to pass in the latter days. And Isaiah is speaking about the same time that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Taking place during the same time of Nebuchadnezzar's fulfillment of his dream in the latter days. He mentions the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. This is the mountain that was grown to to fill the whole earth that destroyed all the other kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2. Mountain is used to refer to governments and kingdoms throughout the prophetic writings. He's speaking of the the kingdom of God, the eternal messianic kingdom. But he adds some other things that Daniel did not add. In verse 3, you notice, he says that out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He had said in chapter 2 and verse 2 that all nations shall flow to it and say, Come to the mountain of the Lord, and for out of Zion shall go forth the law. The kingdom would be established in Zion and in Jerusalem. And the method of it being established is the preaching of God's Word. The Word is taught. The result is reconciliation to God from those among many nations. And when those nations are reconciled to God, they're reconciled to each other. And God's holy mountain, not the world, in His spiritual kingdom, there is no war. There's peace between these people. And so you have the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house, the kingdom of the Messiah to be established. He adds in Jerusalem with the word of the Lord coming forth, there would be the reconciliation and there would be the peace. And then Joel 2. And it's interesting that we have that uh, ability to remember because of Daniel 2, Isaiah 2, and Joel 2. And we'll see another two in a moment. But Joel prophesies about this time as well. I want us to notice in Joel 2 and in verse 28, Joel prophesies, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord God calls. Again, we notice something similar. He says, it will come to pass afterward. We fast forward to Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, and Peter is saying that this event in Acts 2 is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And it is 
translated the last days. The latter days afterward, the last days is speaking of the same time period as in Daniel 2 and Isaiah 2. But then he mentions something slightly different. He says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. But then he says that based on that, there will be prophecy. There will be vision. There will be a revelation of God's will. And so this word of the Lord of Isaiah chapter 2 is the spirit being poured out of Joel chapter 2. The word of the Lord being poured out. And so the what of Isaiah chapter 2 or the the how or the what of Isaiah chapter 2, the word of the Lord coming forth from Zion is the how of Joel chapter 2 by the Spirit's revelation. In verse 32, we have salvation being brought. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we have the very location in verse 32 as well. Zion, Jerusalem. And so prophecy has been very specific, and that's how it works. God does not just prophesy in some general way so that any specific thing could fit it. He prophesies specifics so that when we see those specifics, we know that the prophecy is certain, the prophecy is true. So we fast forward from prophecy. When we get to the very dispensation, the time period that was prophesied about where the kingdom would be established in the days of these kings and the Roman Empire, you notice in Matthew chapter 3, John the baptizer is the Elijah who is to come. We won't get into detail about that, but he is to prepare the way of the Messiah. And I want us to notice in chapter 3, in the days of the Roman Empire, in verse 1 it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Prepare the way of the Messiah. Because he's coming to set up his kingdom that is in the hearts of men. And he says, Therefore repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying it's very near. It's very close. Jesus would come out to him and be baptized. The Spirit would descend upon him as a dove. John was told that when you see the Spirit descending upon that man, he is the Messiah. He is the King of this kingdom that would be established. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness preparing him for his ministry. And then Jesus began to preach. I want us to notice in Matthew 4 and in verse 12, John has prepared the way of the Lord. The kingdom is at hand, he says. So in verse 12 of Matthew 4, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Notice here that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And then this is what Jesus says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus begins His ministry in fulfillment of prophecy. He is the Messiah who is to come. His message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But I want us to notice in verse 15 and 16, it is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9 in verses 1 and 2. And you remember well that Isaiah continues in that prophetic utterance about the Messiah to say in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, that's the messianic throne, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forever. 
The zeal of the host, Lord of hosts will perform this. You see the connections being made here? Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. I'm fulfilling Isaiah 9. I'm the Messiah. And the Messiah comes to set up His kingdom. But the kingdom would not come immediately in the way that they thought in Luke chapter 19. Notice in verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. Something would happen before this kingdom of prophecy is established. It says he spoke another parable in Luke 19, 11, because he was near Jerusalem. Notice, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. But something has to happen first. So he speaks the parable. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He's got to go away first. He receives the kingdom. Then he returns for judgment. Notice in verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received a kingdom. This is parallel with Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7 and in verse 13 where the Messiah would come and he would go away to receive a kingdom and when he came back it would be for judgment it says I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man that's a messianic reference coming with the clouds of heaven he came to the ancient of days that's God and they brought him near before him and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That sounds like Isaiah 2, doesn't it? His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That sounds like Daniel 2. It will never be destroyed, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. He has to ascend first. You might remember in John chapter 20 and verse 17 in his resurrection that Mary, having realized she was talking not to the gardener, but to Jesus, her Lord, was very excited, and Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. You don't want to lose me again, but the permanent relationship you seek is not physical. I've got to ascend to receive my throne, and then you'll be a member, a citizen in my kingdom. That's what you crave. Don't hold on to me. I still have to ascend. I have work left to do. Jesus said in another place, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Speaking of the proximity of the kingdom to the generation in which Jesus lived, he said, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And so it wouldn't come until he ascends, but he says that there are some in this generation that are going to see it. They're going to live to see it. Now, if that's not the case, then Jesus either lied or people cheated death. Because he said there were people living at that time who would witness the coming of the kingdom. And he says it would come present with power. That's another important thing. So you notice what Jesus told the apostles in Luke 24 and in verse 49. He told them, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem. That's important until you were endued with power from on high. It would be in Jerusalem in the days of the Roman Empire. It would come with power in the generation that Jesus spoke to. He tells them to tarry in Jerusalem. Notice in Acts chapter 1, as that concept continues, being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's the promise of Luke 24 which he said, you have heard from me, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That reminds us of Joel chapter 
2. And in verse 8, he mentions that the Holy Spirit baptism would bring them that power. He says in verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 was appropriate to pray, Thy kingdom come during the time that Jesus introduced it. But the kingdom came, brethren. All of these things lined up in Acts chapter 2. You remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, after he had given the instruction about tearing in Jerusalem and to receive power from on high when they are baptized with the Spirit, it says, when he had spoken these things in Acts 1 and verse 9, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received them out of his sight. We saw in Daniel 7 in Luke chapter 14 that he would ascend to receive the kingdom. Luke 19, that is. And so they are to go to Jerusalem. He has ascended. Verse 12 says in Acts chapter 1, they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. What are they waiting for as they pray in Acts chapter 1? They're waiting for the kingdom. And so you remember the kingdom of prophecy is after Jesus ascends. It's soon in the generation that Jesus spoke to in Mark 9 and verse 1. It'll happen in Jerusalem when the Spirit is poured out, when they're endued with power from on high, when the Word is proclaimed and salvation is offered, the kingdom is established. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. In verses 1 through 4, it speaks about how there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and it sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled, the apostles, that is, the antecedent being in chapter 1 with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Scripture continues to demonstrate that this tongue speaking is a speaking of a language that you don't know. It's a miracle. This is the power that accompanied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter explains what's going on in verse 14. He stands up with the eleven and raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words. These aren't drunk as you suppose. Some of them weren't accepting the miracles going on. It is only the third hour of the day, he says. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel chapter 2 and verses 28 through 32. We don't need to read it again. We just read it. And so what was spoken of in prophecy in Joel chapter 2 is what is happening here in Acts chapter 2. That's what Peter is saying. The Spirit's being poured out. The kingdom is coming. These are the latter days. You're about to receive the offer of salvation. So he preaches. He preaches how Jesus was attested to by God through signs and miracles, how the Jews had murdered Him on a cross, and God raised Him from the dead he quotes Psalm 16 in verses 8 through 11, where David speaks about how his soul and his writing is not left in Hades and his flesh is not to see corruption. And, and Peter explains David's not talking about himself because he's dead and buried in the tomb. He foreseeing this, verse 31, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. He had said before, that of the fruit of David's body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. Therefore, verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
I want to tell you that when you see a man take a throne, he's coronated. That means he's a king and he has a kingdom. Peter is saying the messianic kingdom is here. Jesus ascended to receive it. He has received it and it is here. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And just like Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2 and in verse 32, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of salvation Joel prophesied about. And in verse 47, it says, The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Matthew 16 says that the church and the kingdom are the same. The kingdom is. It has been established. And this is what we see going forward. As Psalm 2, they tried to, to thwart God's will. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He reigns. He reigns to this day. And in the book of Acts, progressing, what we see is the kingdom in its present state, its reality. I want us to notice that in Acts 4, or rather Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, that after the great persecution, they scattered and went preaching the word. Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ to them. But I want us to notice a nuance of his preaching there as described in verse 12 of Acts chapter 8. He's preaching Christ. He's preaching Jesus. They believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. He wasn't speaking of the kingdom like Isaiah was and Daniel was and Joel was. He was speaking of their prophecies having been fulfilled. He's explaining and demonstrating that the kingdom exists and you can be a part of it. In Acts 19 and in verse 8, it says verse 3 on the PowerPoint. It's supposed to be verse 8. That's my fault. He went in Ephesus and spoke in the synagogue boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. He wasn't persuading the Jews that there was a kingdom of prophecy. They knew that. He was persuading them that it had come. The church Jesus established is that kingdom of prophecy. In chapter 20 and verse 25, he speaks to the Ephesian elders one more time. Notice what he explains to them. Indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. I preached it to you originally. The church in Ephesus was established. You gained entrance into the kingdom that now exists. And he says, I had preached to you things concerning the kingdom of God. In Acts 28, the apostle Paul is in house arrest in Rome. When they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging. Acts 28 verse 23, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Again, he's not persuading Jews that there is a prophecy about a kingdom that is eternal. He's persuading Jews that the church is that kingdom. He's persuading Jews of the fulfillment of those prophecies. In verse 30, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Indeed, the kingdom came and is. It's interesting in Romans, the 14th chapter, when there's a dispute between Jews and Gentiles and there is dissonance in the church and friction among brethren about whether we should eat meats that are deemed by the law of Moses as impure. And, and there's judging and there's, there's despising that's going on there. But the old law has been nailed to the cross. This is what Paul explains in Romans 14 and verse 17. 
The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Saying the kingdom that you're in, it's not about what you're arguing about. It's not about eating of meats. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about them in the kingdom and how they should behave properly. In 1 Corinthians 11, he wrote to the church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper and their abuse of it. When you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. He explains in verse 23 what he received from the Lord, how he took bread and broke it and gave thanks, and then he blessed the cup and said, It's a covenant in my blood. This do as often as you eat a, a drink of it in remembrance of me. You remember when he established it in Matthew 26 and verse 29. He says, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Corinthians were partaking of the Lord's Supper like we will this morning. That's a kingdom memorial. That's something that happens and occurs within the kingdom of Christ presently. The kingdom is. In Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 13, the Apostle Paul writing to the brethren there is encouraging them about the blessings in Christ. He says that He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. The Colossians were in the kingdom. Paul uses us. Paul was in the kingdom. The kingdom was present when Paul wrote Colossians. In chapter 4, in verse 11, he speaks about some of his countrymen, and he says, These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, and they have proved to be a comfort to me. All those Jews who rejected the kingdom are a thorn in my side, and these brethren, they have accepted the kingdom and have become a part of the kingdom. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, before writing the revelation of Jesus Christ given him on Patmos, John says, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He is a companion of them in the kingdom. There is ample proof that the kingdom of prophecy came in Acts chapter 2. And the scene of the New Testament from then on is speaking about the kingdom and its fulfillment. Not in its, its prospect, not in its future tense, but as it is fulfilled. Yes, Jesus said, the kingdom come, and they should pray that. But when it came, and it is, they should preach it that people would enter it. Very briefly, I want us to notice, as I mentioned before, this is not a, a matter just of some... Doctrine that is without consequence. Really anything doctrinal, even if we're not able to see the consequences from it, anything of doctrine, anything revealed of God, if, if it's tweaked, if it's changed, if there's error that is involved in it, then it causes great problems. Don't you ever minimize that. We must be right about the New Testament. We must submit to what God has bound and what God have, has loosed. And to say that the kingdom has still not come damages so much of the things we believe in. Firstly, and most fundamentally, Christ is not king if the kingdom has come. Those in the world, the denominations will tell you, well, he's a king in waiting. That's not what the New Testament reveals. He's sitting on the throne now. It's not in prospect, it's in fulfillment. And if he is not in a kingdom, then he is not a king. But along with that, if Christ is not king, then he's also not high priest. And that's something that they won't accept. 
He's a king in waiting. He hasn't received his kingdom yet. That's still in the future. But he died for my sins. And his, his death is the, the sufficient sacrifice for my sins. And he's, he's in heaven ministering on my behalf before the throne of God making intercession. But I want to tell you that if he's not a king, then he's not high priest. In Psalm 110, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. You're a king. But notice in verse 4 of Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. When he is made king, he is also a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 7 and verse 1, who is both a high priest or, or a priest of God, the Most High God, and a king of Salem. Jesus as a king is a priest. If he's not a king, he's not a priest. Zechariah 6 says the same. If the kingdom has not come, then we can't be born again. Yeah, you hear all the time in the world the phrase born-again Christian, which is really just redundant. If you're a Christian, you're born again. If you're born again, you're a Christian. But you can't be born again if the kingdom is not present because the new birth is to gain entrance into the kingdom. John was recording Jesus as telling Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're born again, you're giving credence to the fact that the kingdom is in existence. If the kingdom is not in existence, you're not a child of God, you're not born again. And lastly, as we just noticed in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, he says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. If the kingdom hasn't come, we're in darkness. If the kingdom hasn't come, we're in our sins and there is no redemption. We need to understand the grave consequences of error. And be ready to defend the truth of God. Jesus certainly did pray, your kingdom come. And he prayed that prayer, I guarantee you, every time he prayed. It was his mission to come and establish the kingdom and save people from their sins. But when it came, the disciples no longer prayed, your kingdom come. They glorified God for setting up his kingdom, for being successful, and for their great king who reigned on high and reigns on high. The kingdom came and the kingdom is. Before we dismiss our classes, we'll be led by Thomas in a word of prayer.